redefining narratives and shifting perspectives. This is Story Noir. Welcome to chapter 17 of the Story Noir podcast. I'm your host, Opal, and I'm super excited to come to you today with a reading, a live reading done by me. We're going to be taking a look at Sisters of the Yam, which is written by none other than Bell Hooks. In Sisters of the Yam, Bell Hooks reflects on the ways in which the emotional health of Black women has been and continues to be impacted by sexism and racism. Desiring to create a context where Black females could both work on their individual efforts of self-actualization while remaining connected to a larger world of collective struggles, Hooks articulates the link between self-recovery and political resistance, both an expression of the joy of self-healing and the need to be ever vigilant in the struggle for equality, Sisters of the Yam continues to speak to the experience of Black womanhood. Definitely prevalent themes over here on the Story Noir podcast. And so if you're going to be reading along, I'm going to be looking at chapter two, which is Tongues of Fire, Learning Critical Affirmation, which in my copy starts on page 42. And so as we read along, I'll provide a little bit of context and clarity on it. You might hear a little bit of that story noir spice that I like to um, give in. And so without further ado, let me do my thing. Writing about truth telling in relationship to Black experience is difficult. Making connections between the psychological strategies Black folks have historically used to make life bearable in an oppressive and exploitative social context, and then calling attention to the ways these strategies may be disenabling now, when we use them in daily life, particularly in intimate relationships, can too easily sound academic. I look back on the previous chapter, and it does not read with the ease that I've become accustomed to in self-help books. Definitely have so many self-help books on my shelf. (laughs) Maybe this is why the self-help books we read rarely talk about political realities. I want to shift the tone now, however, and speak more concretely about how we confront issues of openness and honesty. Oftentimes, Black folks find it easier to tell it like it is when we are angry, pissed, and desire to use the truth as a weapon to wound others. In such cases, even though a speaker may be open and honest, their primary agenda may be to assert power over another person and hence use the practice of truth-telling to assault someone else's psyche. That is why this chapter attempts to distinguish between the harsh critiques we give one another, which may contain truth and liberating truth-telling. They are not the same. And so I think that that's really interesting when thinking about performance reviews, because right now, We're heading into performance review season and getting constructive criticism from your boss can definitely be, oh, especially when it's tied to bonuses and things like that. It's like, oh, did I perform okay? And it's like, no, they told me about how I'm a piece of hoop and no one cares about me and I'm a performer. Like that kind of harsh criticism of like, okay, this is the way, opposed to like, this is the way you could show up and maybe do a little bit better. And like, here are steps that you could take to improve I think that that kind of truth-telling or, like, giving feedback, we would just have a lot easier. We would have it a lot easier uh, in the workplace if we could actually give critical feedback opposed to debilitating feedback. But I digress. 
Back to the story. Raised in a family of sharp-tongued women who were known to raise their voices to argue and to cuss, I and my five sisters learned early on how telling it like it is could be used as a weapon of power to humiliate and shame someone. Here is an example from my experience. Growing up, I was very skinny and saw this as a sign of extreme unattractiveness. Relentlessly teased by my sisters and my brother, who often told elaborate stories that entertained everyone about how often he had witnessed the wind blowing me away and had to chase after me and hold onto my feet to keep him from losing me. And my family completely reinforced the sense that to be skinny was to be ugly and a cause for shame. Now, whenever my family described me as skinny, they were being honest. Yet, what was the intent behind the honesty? Usually, it was to make me the object of ridicule and mockery. Though often the, prod- the object of unkind reading that humiliated and shamed, I learned to protect myself by also developing the skill to name just that bit of information about, so- about someone that would expose them and make them feel vulnerable. What we all participated in was a practice of verbal assault. Truth-telling is a weapon. In contemporary Black culture, this practice often takes the form of calling somebody out that is, reading them, or in a milder form, dissing them. Having someone critically analyze you and expose aspects of your reality you might like to keep hidden or deny can be constructive and even pleasurable. However, it usually takes place in a context where the intent is to hurt or wound. Exploring the way we as Black women use this form of telling it like it is will help some of us who may see ourselves as open and honest examine whether we are really dedicated to truth-telling when we are exposing something about someone else. Harsh criticism with a truth-telling component is often a major characteristic of Black mother and daughter relationships. Since many Black women were and are still raised in households where most of the love and affection we receive comes from Black women elders, mothers, aunts, and grandmothers, who may also use criticism in a verbally abusive way, We may come to see such a practice as a caring gesture. And even though it wounds, we may imagine this hurting takes place for our own good. And so it's, again, an example of that is like, you know, moms criticizing their daughters. You know, it's like, I got to be mean to you to prepare you for the world. We had read in The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, the relationship between, I believe her name is Jael and her mother, how it was like, well, I don't want her going to that birthday party because if, you know, I start letting her do one thing, you know, I got to prepare her for the world, you know, in here. So when she gets into the outside, she doesn't get hurt. Like, what? What are we doing? We're not setting our children up for success. And so that's just one of many examples. But let me carry on. Oh, yeah. Let me give an example that has fresh in my memory because it was a story told to me just yesterday by T, a young black woman. Attending a girlfriend's college graduation, she went out to eat with her friend's family. During dinner, the mother kept calling attention to the fact that her daughter needed to lose weight. Now, it should be obvious that the public setting was not an appropriate place for such a dialogue. And why on a special day, a time when the daughter's achievements should be focused on and celebrated, does the mother call attention to perceived flaws or failings? When T T tried to intervene on her friend's behalf and assert that she thought she looked fine, she was kicked under the table by her friend and made to hush. Probably, like many of us, the friend is so accustomed to her mother choosing inappropriate moments to offer criticism 
or always being critical, but she adjusts by simply not responding. Ooh, how many of us can relate? <laughs> For some of us, the endless negative critiques we have received from our mothers have been really disenabling. Yet, having learned how to use criticism with truth content to wound, we may employ the same practices. And like mothers who do this, when called on it, we may fall back into insisting that we are just being honest. Here, honesty is evoked to cover up abusive practices and hurting intent. That is not the kind of honesty that is healing. And it is vitally important for Black female well-being that we can distinguish it from a commitment to truth-telling. Often, Black females are raised in households where we are told by mothers who constantly give disparaging critiques, I would be less than a mother if I did not tell you the truth. When trying to analyze the sources of this, fam of this faulty logic, I trace it back once again to the survival strategies Black folks developed to adjust to living in a white supremacist context. The reality of racial apartheid was such that most Black folks knew that they would never really trust that they would be safe in that white-dominated world outside of the home or the all-Black neighborhood. To gain a sense that they had some control over the situation, they set standards for behavior that were seen as appropriate safeguards. When racial integration happened, Black folks did not immediately disregard these strategies. They adjusted them. One adjustment was the attempt to second-guess what the critical white world might say to disparage, ridicule, or mock, and to prevent that from happening through self-critique and changing one's behavior accordingly. We were raised hearing stories about mothers punishing Black women, or sorry, Black children, who were given no clear sense of what they had done that was considered wrong or inappropriate because they felt that the child might assert themselves in ways outside of the home that might lead to white people to abuse and punish them. That's exactly what I just said. Setting up a system of internal checks required not only vigilant self-scrutiny, but also a willingness to place oneself in the mindset of the oppressor. This meant that Black people were not focusing attention on constructing ways to critically affirm ourselves. Instead, we worked at developing strategies to avoid punishment. Since no in-depth studies have been done looking at attempts on the part of Black people to see ourselves through the negative eyes of the colonizer oppressor, we can only speculate that such practices help create a social climate where Black folks would be harshly critical of one another. Living in a sexist society where mothers are often blamed for any problem that arises with children, it makes sense that Black mothers had often felt the need to assert control over their children in ways that are oppressive and dominating. How else can they prove to outside onlookers that they are good parents? The desire, of course, is to be beyond a reapproach. Fierce parental critique and the threat of punishment is a strategy that many Black women use to assert their authority with children. One has to only observe Black women parenting young children in public places. Often the children are spoken to harshly. Bring your ass over here like I told you. Sit your Black ass down and shut up. Not because the mother is angry at the children, but because she desires them to behave appropriately in public settings. She wants to be perceived as a good parent. Notice, though, that being a good parent is made synonymous with to the extent to which one is able to exercise control over a child's behavior. We would do well to connect this obsession with control to the strategies of domination white people have used and still use to maintain authority over us. We need to better understand how Black folks who feel relatively powerless to control their destiny exercise negative power over one another in hierarchical settings. 
the parent-child relationship in a culture of domination like this one is based on the assumption that the adult has the right to rule the child. It is a model of parenting that mirrors the master-slave relationship. Black parents' obsession with exercising control over children, making certain that they are obedient, is an expression of this distorted view of family relations. The parent's desire to care for the child is placed in competition with the perceived need to exercise control. And this is graphically illustrated in Audre Lorde's autobiographical work, Zombie. Descriptions of her childhood here offer glimpses of that type of strict parenting that many black parents felt was needed to prepare black children for a life in a that for black children for life in a hostile white society. Not understanding the way racism works as a child, the young Audrey decides to run for sixth grade class president. She tells the news to her mother, only to be greeted with these furious words. What the hell are you doing getting yourself involved with so much foolishness? You you don't have better sense in your head than that? What the fuck do you need with this election? We sent you to school to work, not to prance about with president this election that. Get down the rice, girl, and stop talking your foolishness. And so when her mother said, get down the rice, that was a form of punishment where children would have to sit on their knees, their bare knees, um, on top of grains of rice as a form of punishment, which was very prevalent, prevalent back in the day. I'm not sure about today, but yeah, just know it's a form of punishment. When Audrey participates in the election anyway and comes home crying and emotionally crushed because she did not win, her mother responds with rage, striking a blow that Lord remembers caught me full on, on the side of my head. Then her mother says, see, the bird that forgets, but the trap doesn't. Sorry, the bird forgets, but the trap doesn't. I warned you. What do you think you're doing coming into this house wailing about election? If I told you once, I've told you a hundred times. Don't chase yourself behind these people, haven't I? What kind of ninny rays up here do you think these good-for-nothing white piss jacks would pass over some little jackabout girl to elect you anything? Golly, okay, shit. And the blows continued. Though Lord's background is West Indian, Northern, and Urban, those of us growing up in the South confronted the same craziness in our parents. I can remember when my sister V wanted to play tennis after the schools were racially integrated. Up until then, our black schools did not have tennis teams, and our parents could not afford the necessary equipment. However, but rather than explain this, they criticized V and made it seem that she had a problem for wanting to play this game. Often after such strange incidents, after maternal rage had subsided, we may be given a bit of tenderness, behavior that further in reinforced the notion that somehow this fierce, humiliating critique was for our own good. Again, these negative parental strategies were employed to prepare black children for entering a white-dominated society that our parents knew would not treat us well. They thought that by making us tough, teaching us to endure pain with a stiff upper lip, that they were ensuring our survival. Knowing the concern and care that informs such behavior and understanding it better when we grow older often leads black women into adult life to imagine what our survival and the successes we have gained are indeed due to our having been forced to confront negative critique and punishment. Consequently, it is often difficult for black women to admit that dominating mothers who use a constant barrage of negative verbal abuse to whip us into shape were not acting in a caring manner, even if they acted out of positive intent. 
When I got grown and had to cope with running my own household, keeping it clean, buying necessities, paying the bills, I began to look with awe at Mama, wondering how she found the time to take care of seven children, clean, shop, and cook three meals a day with very little help from our patriarchal father. Understanding these hardships made the constant, harsh, humiliating way she spoke to us make sense. And I find it easy to forgive that harshness. But I now can also honestly name that it was hurting, and it did not make me or my siblings feel securely loved. Indeed, I always felt that not behaving appropriately meant that one risked wrath and punishment, and more frighteningly, the loss of love. And it's important for Black women engaged in a process of self-recovery to examine the way in which harsh critique was used to check and police our behavior so that we can examine the extent to which we relate similarly to others. When my siblings and I were children, we vowed that we would never yell at our kids or say mean things the way mama and daddy did. Yet some of us have, unwittingly, broken that vow. Visiting one of my sisters and her family for the first time, I was shocked at the harsh negative manner she used when speaking to her children. It was so much like our childhood, only there was one difference. Her children used the same nasty tone of voice when speaking to each other. So when I gently called her on it and my voice and voiced my concern, she expressed surprise. Working all day and coming home to more work, she'd not really noticed how she and the kids were talking to each other. To make my honest critique a constructive and caring one, I suggested that we do role-playing with the kids after dinner, talking the way they used to talk to one another, then showing how it could be done differently. Rather than saying, sit your ass down and I ain't gonna tell you no more, we practiced saying politely but firmly, would you please stop doing that and sit down? At first, the kids made fun of their Aunt Glow and her stories about noise pollution and how the ways we talk to one another can hurt our hearts and ears, but we could all see and feel the difference. Critical affirmation emerges only when we are willing to risk constructive confrontation and challenge. What my sister found with her children was that if she spoke in a completely harsh, humiliating manner, she might indeed get a quicker response than when she made declarations with, clearing, with caring tones. But the effect of the latter was so much better. She improved the family well-being, even though it required greater concentration and a little more time to frame responses in a caring way. To heal our wounds, we must be able to critically examine our behavior and change. For years, I was a sharp-tongued woman who often inappropriately lashed out. I've increasingly learned to distinguish between reading and truth-telling. Watching my behavior, actually jotting down on paper how many negative critical comments I make in a day, helped me to change my behavior. Most Black women know what it is like to, to bear the brunt of brutal tongue lashings. Most have been told the truth about ourselves in ways that have been hurtful and humiliating. Yet, even so, many of us continue to see the harsh critique as a means to strengthen character. We need to know that constructive critical affirmation is just as effective a strategy for building character, if not more so. We find this out through an ongoing practice of critical affirmation. Often the harsh, abusively critical tone and voice of authority that we heard in childhood enters us. Then we no longer have to be in the presence of dominating authority to hear that voice, for it speaks to us from within. In self-healing, Black women can identify that voice within ourselves and begin to replace it with a gentle, compassionate, caring voice. When we see the positive results in our lives, we are then able to extend the generosity we give ourselves and to others. And having silenced the negative voice within, 
and replaced it with loving, caring criticism. It is also important for Black women to practice speaking in a loving and caring manner about what we appreciate about one another. For such an action makes it evident to all observers of our social reality that Black women deserve care, respect, and ongoing affirmation. Thank you.